Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Welcome to Chechnya. It's directed by acclaimed writer and Oscar-nominated director David France. He shadows a group of activists risking their lives to confront an ongoing anti-LGBTQ campaign in the Russian Republic of Chechnya. With unfettered access and a commitment to protecting the anonymity, this documentary exposes these unreported atrocities while highlighting an extraordinary group of people confronting deadly brutality. The film, again, is called Welcome to Chechnya, and the... uh, Oscar-nominated film that we just uh, mentioned, How to Survive a Plague, and we're joined today by the director of that film and this film, David France. David, welcome back to Film School Radio. Thank you. Nice to see you, Mike. As well. Um, Tell me a little bit about how you heard about um, Chechnya and the situation there. Uh, Well, you know, we all heard in early 2017 uh, that that it was revealed that this campaign was being conducted there, this brutal um, a, a series of atrocities against the community. Uh, the headlines uh, went around the globe and lasted for a week or two, uh, and then uh, kind of slid from, from the news. And um, you know, I mistakenly came to the conclusion that the work had been done to, to you know, bring people to justice and, and make sure this wasn't happening anymore. And it wasn't until the summer that I read an article that exposed the fact that it was still going on, and that in fact, in, because of the silence from the global leadership, it fell to the, uh, the local LGBT community to fashion a sort of response on its own to, to rescue people, literally, to um, go to Chechnya and, uh, and evacuate people, survivors of this abuse, hide them, treat their injuries, and work with foreign uh, governments to try and find uh, these extraordinary visas that would allow them to to fly to more relative safety elsewhere in the world. The idea just struck me as being uh, something that you couldn't imagine. It struck me as being the first time since Hitler that such uh, human um, uh, activism was necessary in order to save lives. Yeah. And so I, I wanted to tell that story. I wanted to tell the story that ordinary people have been taking on these extraordinary um, uh, risky responsibilities uh, because nobody else was doing the work and they were willing to do this on their own at, um, at their own peril uh, to save members of the community that they had never met. And that's the kind of uh, like true heroism that you read about in novels. And, and I wanted to go and pay witness to it myself and, and bring that witness account to the world. Let's talk a little bit about Chechnya. Now, um, it is a Russian republic, and this is where my, my knowledge of the current sort of uh, political state of Russia is, that this is an independent state, technically speaking, from Russia. Am I correct in saying that? No, it's a, it's a part of Russia proper. Okay, um, it is proper. It, um, it, like all of the republics of the North Caucasus, it's part of the Russian Federation. Okay. Um, and it joins a number of republics in other um, uh, distinct areas, all of which are 
more or less like states within Russia. Uh, it is headed by this madman, Ramzan Kadyrov, who Putin himself put in a charge there. And I mean, he does Putin's dirty work for him. And in exchange, Putin turns a blind eye to all these human rights violations that have been, um, that he's been carrying out there for the last decade or more. Um, it's it, it's a, a strange relationship that, that, that the two of them have, and it's one that's mutually beneficial, but one that, um, that has led to many extrajudicial killings, not just uh, of the LGBTQ community over the last three years, but of, um, of you know, any number of enemies, either of Putin's or of, of Kadyrov's, of human rights defenders of all stripes. Um, so it's, it's a dangerous place to, for anybody to be who's trying to argue for a kind of a liberal um, a, approach to life. It's very closed down, it's very structured, it's very dominated by the policies of one man and his whims. Thank you for reminding me of that because it's different than Ukraine. Ukraine is technically an independent country. So, but people would, I often do, conflate all of the region as sort of a loosely Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan. There, it's a whole. It's a very interesting part of the world, shall we say, politically and structurally as well. And um, and you get that sense from watching uh, the film "Welcome to Chechnya" is that how shut down it is, how isolated and easily. If you really want to understand how a police state works, this is a good film to watch with maybe some others in terms of just how you can shut down a, an entire country. Mm, absolutely. And also to let loose the worst impulses, to encourage the worst impulses. Not This isn't just the police. This isn't just the authorities, but this is a cultural kind of program, if you will, against gays and lesbians, transgender, you name it, and others, as you, you've articulated. I think what's what also what is so striking is uh, the access that you got to so, to the people who are running who are brave enough. It's incredible. It's, you're, as you stated earlier, it's an incredible situation and finding these people who are how you found these people is amazing. And let's start with uh, David. Is that East? I might make sure East Steph. East Steve. Steve. Is Steve. Is Steve. Thank you. Um, what a remarkable person he is. Uh, tell us a little bit about who he is and what it, why he's important in telling the story. Uh, uh, David works for the Russian LGBT network. And um, like all the people that I met who are, you know, taking on the responsibility of trying to save lives there, uh, he had no background in, you know, rescue work or you know, all that kind of shadowy uh, stuff that he's having to do even to this day. He had been a journalist and had started working for the LGBT network, putting together transgender programs for them. Uh, and he had a title that, that was like an emergency relief supervisor for the organization. Um, and what that meant was that he would respond to people who were mugged in St. Petersburg or anybody who was queer who needed some assistance in some way. Sometimes they were homeless because their family had thrown them out. Sometimes, so he was doing that kind of work. It was it it was not this kind of James Bond stuff that suddenly he found himself called upon to carry out. And and he he carries an enormous weight on his shoulders uh, to to do this work. And he does it with such selflessness. It's just really remarkable. He's such a human being like I've never met before. And and it was important for him. I I want to point out to have himself included in this film without a disguise because 
he was already had crossed too many lines and had put himself at risk. And he felt the, the need to, to become a kind of a public figure and that that would give him the protection that he needed in order to be able to continue doing his work. So he was supportive of the idea of making this film right from the start as a way to not just bring attention to the problem, but to bring added security to the people who are doing the work. Right. Uh, before we go any further, I'd like to remind our listeners that we're speaking with David France. The film is called Welcome to Chechnya, and it will be uh, premiering on HBO on June 30th, which is a Tuesday. And I hope you will please watch this film. It is a remarkable film for a lot of reasons. And um, one other person who, in terms of sort of the the underground railroad of, of Chechnya, Olga Baranova, she was the, she's also the a founder of a group that is also involved in helping people uh, in, in dire situations. Absolutely. They worked together. She was the founder of the Russian LGBT um, Community Center in Moscow. And, um, and that was a center that had, you know, it was like any community center. It was a drop-in place. It was, it was not overtly political. And when the news broke about what was happening in Chechnya, uh, uh, David and people from his organization reached out to her and said, we've got to do something. Let's set up a shelter. And so she did that as part of her uh, request from the network and, um, and, and found herself just getting deeper and deeper and deeper into this, this, this radical uh, response campaign, opening up uh, scattered shelters all over the country um, and uh, confronting uh, the possibility of raids and actual raids in some of those shelters, uh, losing some of the people that she was protecting um, from time to time, uh, but for the most part, taking care of people when they first show up in the shelter. Many of them have medical crises from the uh, tortures that they had endured, and certainly psychological trauma that she helped um, line up uh, treatment to, uh, experts for. And she built a community, a safe place for people to breathe a little in their first hours after getting out of these dangers. And then comfortable places for them as they waited for foreign governments to issue visas that would allow them to travel. I want to talk about the individual stories that we follow, but I'm afraid I won't do justice to them. I just sort of, I feel like I'd be cherry picking, but I want to just make it clear that Anya, Grisha, um, who else we, um, well, there's a number of stories. Let me, and they're heartbreaking, they're encouraging, they're full of hope and full of despair. I mean, there's a, a whole lot of things going on in every one of these stories. And uh, you, do, you just you tell the story beautifully in, in, in how you're able, because of the access that you have. Well, thank um, you, and I do want to talk, go ahead. Please. Because of the trust, I mean, they trusted me and they, they trusted um, that I would uh, faithfully tell their stories and, and al allow them a safe way to, to regain control of their narratives, to, to, um, to restore their own individual humanity. And, um, and they invited me in on this journey. So I was very honored, but also very um, careful to make sure I lived up to the trust that they put in me. Right. Uh, but you can see in the film how unguarded they are at all times and how, how just simply um, they, they act in front of the camera. They're, they're just living their lives in, in extremis. Uh, and, um, and, and that's just 
you know, very apparent that they brought us in almost as family at that point as we followed them as they were making their way to safety. And absolutely. And there is a technique that uh, you were able to deploy through the miracle of modern technology in which you were able to, with the exception of David, who you just mentioned, without this particular way of masking their faces or tell you tell it better than I will. How did, what was this technology and how, how did, how has it manifested itself? What we learned is that people needed to be disguised at all times. That there's, there's never going to be a time in their lives where they will feel safe enough to claim their stories publicly. Um, so I promised everybody I would find a way to disguise them. And the, 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 the existing toolbox for documentary filmmakers just proved inadequate. It, um, it either erased the humanity of the people whose lives I was, I was trying to uh, bring to the public, or it made them somehow more recognizable by kind of making them into caricatures of themselves. And, uh, and then what, what we eventually began to do was to develop with a VFX uh, team in LA, a use of artificial intelligence and deep machine learning that would allow us to transplant on their heads somebody else's face. Uh, It's a digital process that takes up the face of someone else. We've asked 22 people to volunteer and let us film their faces at all angles. We created this algorithm that took that digital information and mapped it like a a new skin over the people who are in the film. And what that effect allows is for the emotional journey of those individuals to, to go unaltered when they when they were happy, when they were sad, when they were frightened, it all shows, but not through their skin. It shows with the, through someone else's skin. And those people were all, I went to them each individually and said, this is gonna be an act of activism. I'm gonna ask you if you will allow me to use your face to shield and protect the lives of these people. And, and they all stood up based on that and said, I will take on whatever risk is associated with, with being, um, being mistaken for uh, the Chechen survivors. And, um, and, and, and it took us 10 months to do it, but I think it was well worth it because it really gives kind of a, a truth to their stories. It restores to them so many powers that have been taken away and, uh, and effectively keeps them hidden from anybody else. Excuse me, in the last couple of minutes I have with you, David, I do want to ask you the political pressure coming, obviously, um, the president of Chechnya is sort of a afterthought in all of this, although he implements these policies that are coming from Moscow. Is there something particular about what Putin is about right now, Vladimir Putin, president of Russia? Is there something about, there's, is there a, a, an alliance with religious right-wing groups? Is there, is there, what's going on politically that gives the cover or gives the justification for the crackdown, other than just cultural and sexual racism or but you know what I'm trying to get to here, right? I do. I'll, I'll bring you back to the fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, and it was not, uh, Soviet Union was not a friendly place to LGBT uh, uh, Russians at the time, or Soviets. And, um, but a- after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, all anti-LGBT laws were stricken. And in the 90s and 2000s, for two decades, the... Uh, community of LGBTQ Russians lived very openly and very um, fearlessly, and they created a vibrant culture, a vibrant movement, um, uh, uh, a vibrant community. And it wasn't until 2011 uh, 
um, as, uh, in the height of the pro-democracy movement that was taking foot there at the time, uh, in opposition to uh, Vladimir Putin's return for a second presidency in uh, apparent violation of the constitution, that he turned to the, these kind of culture wars as a tool for gaining the kind of political clout and partnerships with, with as you pointed out, the, the Russian Orthodox Church and others um, to help bring him back to office. Uh, and it worked. And, um, and he began to embrace this anti-queer um, you know, ideology and politic uh, as uh, part and parcel to his campaign to hold on to power there. Um, and so it got him another two terms. And we are now at the end of his second term. And he is again cranking up the dial on anti-queer sentiment in the, in the country as he's uh, presenting a, a new a series of constitutional amendments for ratification. Uh, it includes multiple um, articles that enshrine, will enshrine now in the Constitution an anti-LGBT ethos. Um, and Oh, and by the way, um, it gives him another two terms ahead. So it basically makes him president for life. And, uh, and he's found, as many other dictators have, that it's a useful tool. It works to, yeah. to, to use and foment homophobia as right. a way to, um, to, to, to solidify political grip on power. Right. Just one last thing, and this is sort of a, <clears throat> anecdotal in a way, but um, I was also under the impression that uh, one of the sort of uh, points of interest uh, common interest that Trump, Donald Trump, our president, and Putin have is the spread of a more, even more radical right-wing religious um, ethos uh, culture. And one of the trade-offs has been that um, the evangelicals have been allowed into Russia in, in order to bring about this religious, I don't even know, the religious program, if you will, and that that's, we, uh, we have had a hand somewhat in allowing that Trump has sort of looked the other way and let the religious right move into Russia. And apparently Putin is allowing that to happen. So there is, there's plenty of blame to go around is what I'm trying to get to, right? Well, and, and also as, as we say at the end of the film, it's important to notice and take note of the fact that the U.S. has not received any of those people who are fleeing from that region. Right. Um, and they have uh, basically erected a, 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 this was even before uh, COVID, obviously, erected a wall against any Muslims traveling into the country, um, even those claiming, uh, those with, uh, with claims for asylum that are guaranteed by international law and mm -hmm. which the United States is mandated to honor. Um, so right. they have been singular in their campaign against helping. Yeah. And one last thing, Chechnya, um, the civil war that occurred in the, in the 90s in Chechnya is still to this day, I hear people talk about some of the most brutal civil wars or uh, uprisings in the, the last 50 years. And Chechnya is almost always at the top of the list or near the top of the list of the most brutal, repressive um, civil war. And that's, what, that's what put Kadyrov in charge. So um, well, he climbed up over many, many dead bodies to get yes, yes. Well, I want to thank you, uh, David France. The film, again, is called Welcome to Chechnya, and it is premiering on HBO on Tuesday, June 30th.
want to thank you so much for finding time to spend with us again here on Film School Radio. David France, thank you. Thank you, Mike. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.